how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Galatians part two. Throughout the book of Acts, we see a loosening of the ties between Judaism and Christianity. Stephen began it and his martyrdom, well, he was the first martyr for this particular issue. And Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch took it a little further and then Peter with Cornelius, and soon the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were very, very suspicious about this new faith being taken to Gentiles. didn't seem Jewish enough for them, and so finally Paul went up to Jerusalem to challenge the very heart of the church that was sending out these anti-missionaries, as it were, who were saying it's not just enough to believe, you've got to be circumcised as well. And the real issue was not circumcision, behind that lay the question, should a Gentile become a Jew when they become a Christian? The question of Judaism as such. But behind that was the big issue and the real issue was salvation itself. Not Judaism or circumcision, but salvation. And the whole question was, is it by works or by faith or a mixture? Now most religions of the world are salvation by works. You must pray, you must fast, you must give alms and so on, and then at the end of it all you'll get right with God. You save yourself by your own efforts. And do-it-yourself religion does appeal to people because it leaves them with their pride. I achieved it. It is self-righteousness and God hates self-righteousness. He'd rather deal with sin than self-righteousness. Jesus just couldn't get on with self-righteous people. He, he was a friend of sinners but the self-righteous, the Pharisees, he couldn't get on with at all. Is salvation by works alone? Do you really have to do your best and really work hard to get there? Or is salvation works plus faith? That's very common. I was a chaplain in the Royal Air Force and I was the OD chaplain, the oddbod, the other denominations. There was an RC and a C of E and when a new bunch of men arrived, the C of E would say, how many of you have been christened C of E? And he'd walk off with 70%. Then the RC would take off everybody with an Irish accent and I would be left. <laughs> and I was left with Baptists, Methodists, Salvationists, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, agnostics, atheists. Fascinating to be chaplain to atheists, you know. That's another story. But when the men were seated before me, I used to say, how many Methodists and how many Baptists, how many Salvationists? Put their hands up. And in the same tone of voice, and I'd say, how many Christians? Dead silence. Occasionally, a lad would put his hand up and smile, but usually they would go, <laughs> see if anybody else was. I'd say, come on, you told me how many Methodists and Baptists, well, how many Christians? And they used to say, but what do you mean by Christian Padre? And I said, well, what do you think I mean? And they always said the same thing, someone who keeps the Ten Commandments. Now, I guess they picked that up in church as children, reading them on the wall. But I said, okay, I'll accept that. A Christian is someone who keeps the Ten Commandments. How many Christians are there here? <laughs> so, and again, there'd be real uncertainty. And then somebody would say, but Padre, you can't keep them all. I would say, well, how many do you have to keep to be a Christian? They always said six out of ten. 
I said, okay, I accept that. A Christian is someone who keeps six out of ten commandments. How many Christians are there here? <laughs> and it led to a tremendous discussion of what a Christian is. And I made them do the discussion. And this was what they were really struggling with. See, works plus faith says, do as many as you can and then have faith for what you don't manage. Keep as many commandments as you can and then ask God to forgive what you didn't manage to keep. That is the most common understanding of Christianity that there is in our country, that do-gooding. Then there are those who say, no, it's faith plus works. You start with faith and then you go on to works and you keep the law after you've believed, but you've got to keep the law. See, that's what the Judaizers were saying. Start with faith and then keep the law. And that's why Paul was going to say to the Galatians, having started in the Spirit, are you going to continue in the flesh? Because law belongs to flesh. That's your effort. It's not the Spirit doing it in you, it's you doing it. And what Paul was fighting for was faith alone. Faith from first to last, as he often puts it. Faith from beginning to end. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God that saves everyone who goes on believing. There's that continuous present again. For it is from faith to faith. Faith from first to last, as the NIV puts it. In other words, we cannot compromise on this. You go on believing. That's the heart of it. You don't believe at the beginning and then work for it. You go on believing. And there's a big difference between telling people they need to go on believing and telling them they need to keep the law now. Huge difference. So this is the real issue that Paul is fighting. What he is fighting for is Christian freedom. To introduce the law at any stage is to put them under a curse. Because the only pass mark that Jesus will accept for the law is 100%. You either keep them all or you've broken the law. And that's true with the traffic laws. If I'm stopped by a speed cop, I can't say, but, but officer, I stopped at every red light on the way here. He says, I don't care if you stopped at every red light. You have broken the law. And that's what God says, because the law is not just a string of pearls, it's a necklace. Holiness is a complete thing, and if you break it at any point, the pearls all fall, to, fall on the ground. You've broken the law. It doesn't matter if you've broken one or nine or ten. It's like three people stranded on a rock in the incoming tide and there's a three-meter deep bit of sea now between the rock and the sand and the first man jumped and he only managed to jump a third of the way and he drowned. The second man was a better jumper and he managed two-thirds the way. He drowned. The third man only missed by six inches but he'd, he was lost too. And actually, keeping the law, it doesn't matter whether you managed a bit or a lot. If you didn't make it 100%, you're just as lost as if you broke most of them. That's how God thinks, that's how his word says. Cursed be he who does not continue in all these laws to go on doing them, says the scripture. Now that's the curse you're under if you try and keep the commandments and get to heaven under your own steam. 
but the gospel has a different way of righteousness altogether. Then, of course, the obvious question is, then why did God give the Ten Commandments? Why did he give the law of Moses at all? And the answer is in Galatians. The answer is, it is by the straight edge of the law that we realise how crooked we are. In other words, it's only the law that tells you you're a sinner. You don't find out how wrong you've been until you study the law of God, then you discover. It was introduced to prepare us for Christ by showing us that we couldn't keep that law. That's why preaching the Ten Commandments can bring a person to conviction of sin, because they know there's no way they can keep it, especially the way Jesus reinterpreted those laws. So we come to the real matter of liberty. Now we've got for the first time a picture visual aids coming up. That's the whole of Galatians in one picture. Very simple picture, but I need to explain it. Where shall we start? The three things that we're talking about are legalism, liberty and license. And legalism is an enemy of liberty, but what people don't always realise is that license is too. And chapters 1 to 2 of Galatians talk about our liberty in Christ. Under the favour of the Father, we we're in the sunshine of his love, in the freedom of the Spirit, and the foundation is faith in the Son. So Father, Son and Spirit are giving us the freedom of standing up here. But there are two ways of losing that freedom. One is to slip back into law, which is a cage, we're trapped in it. We try and climb out, but we can't. You once get back under law and you're in bondage, in slavery, and you're under the wrath of God again because you can't keep it. But there's another way to lose your liberty, and that's to slip down this side into the swamp of the flesh. And that also is bondage, but it's bondage to yourself. This way you'll invariably become in bondage to others because of their rules and regulations, this way you become in bondage to your own desires and you're under the wrath of God again and you've lost your freedom. Have any of you ever been to Striding Edge in, uh, on Helvellyn in the Lake District? That's a perfect illustration because it's, it's a very sharp path right along a ridge and either side are two huge hollows, we call them corries, they've been hollowed out by great balls of ice in the Ice Age revolving and as the two balls revolve, they leave this very sharp thing. The Matterhorn in Switzerland was the result of three balls of ice revolving and it leaves a three-pointed thing, but the two-sided uh, thing is two balls of ice doing this. And it's wonderful to walk along the striding edge, but my, if you do it in a high wind, the only safe way to do it is on your knees. There's a moral there. <laughs> All right, preaching again. Well, striding edge. You see, it is a delicate striding edge that we walk in the liberty of the Spirit. It's so easy to slip one way or the other. And I would say the, the biggest danger to Christians in their liberty is legalism, surprisingly, because license is pretty obvious. It's when churches start making extra rules and regulations that you get so easily into legalism. And legalism kills the Spirit dead. You go into a legalistic fellowship and you can tell it straight away. Everybody has pursed lips, you know? <laughs> Have you seen that? A 
and there's a kind of set expression, a hard expression on people's face. They've got under the law again. They're keeping it, but oh, it makes you tough, makes you hard. It's not the liberty of the spirit. Legalism makes the whole thing a matter of rules rather than relationships. That's probably the key. And a person thinks they're a Christian because they're keeping the rules. Don't smoke, don't gamble, don't drink, don't do this, don't do that. And, and so they're, they're keeping the rules, but the relationship is gone. Just to give you a homely illustration of this, there was a young man came to our church in Buckinghamshire called Don. He was a bit of a rough diamond, but he came to Christ. And a few weeks later he said to me, David, should a Christian go to the cinema on Sunday evenings? Well, now I was tempted to quote Hezekiah 3.16, which as you know, it says a Christian must not go to the cinema Sunday evenings. But anyway, I, I, re I resisted the temptation and I said, Don, I'm not going to tell you. He said, uh, why not? I said, because you've got to find out from Jesus. Now, if there'd been something clear in Scripture, I would have told him because you can speak with authority where the Spirit has already spoken. But as far as I know, the Bible doesn't deal with that question. So I said, you must find out from Jesus. He said, well, how do I find out? I said, take him with you next Sunday night and see if he enjoys the film. <laughs> so the next Sunday night, Don goes to the local cinema in Jared's Cross there and he said to the girl in the box office, two tickets, please. <laughs> and he was all alone at the moment, you see. Nobody was standing with him. So... Uh, the girl said, uh, is your girlfriend uh, joining you? He said, no, that's all right. Just, there's the money, give me two tickets. But she said, there's nobody with you. Look, he said, let's not argue. There's the money, two tickets, please. Well, now her feminine curiosity just was not satisfied. <laughs> and she said, well, who's the other ticket for? And he said, well, if you must know, it's for Jesus. And she got scared stiff. <laughs> she, she, she lifted the telephone and as and asked the manager to come down from his office. So the manager came down, he said, what's the problem? Well, he wants two tickets. Well, give him two tickets. What do you call me down? He wants one for Jesus, she said. And now the manager couldn't handle it and he stuttered and he stammered. He said, well, he said, I suppose if he want, you know, if he's willing to pay, give him two tickets, you see. Good business for us. So he got the two tickets, he went inside, he said, you sit there, Jesus, I'll sit here. And 10 minutes into the film, he said, are you enjoying it? And two minutes later, he came out. Now you see, there are some people who say that's bad shepherding. You should have taken responsibility for his decision. I believe it was good shepherding, you see, because that's the liberty of the Spirit. It's so easy for me to make a new rule. And I'm not saying it's wrong for a Christian to go to the cinema, but for him, Jesus said, not for you, you see. Now this is the liberty of the Spirit. It's not doing what you want. And it's not doing what others tell you, it's letting the Spirit guide you. See, the real freedom, as Paul says in this letter, is not the freedom to sin, but it's the freedom not to. And that's real freedom. No unbeliever has that freedom. That's the freedom that wants for us. But it's so easy to try and stop people going into the flesh by putting them under law. That's the only answer some fellowships have. Do you, see, do you see? They're trying to protect their members from doing this and getting into this swamp without realizing that that's just as bad as this. And legalism is just as much an enemy of liberty as license. Now, have you followed that?
That's the whole argument of Galatians, and the chapters simply, chapters 1 and 2 talk about this liberty, chapters 3 and 4 talk about the legalism that can spoil it, chapters 5 and 6 talk about the opposite danger. So Paul is actually fighting on two fronts, and that is the real problem, that on most issues you find yourself fighting on two fronts. To keep the truth, to keep liberty, and walking that striding edge is really quite a delicate operation. So let's look at these three things. How are we doing for time? We're all right. First of all, let's look a bit more closely at legalism. Circumcision is the first link in the chain for those Galatians. It would be the beginning of legalism. You must do this. And it is not part of the Gospel, and they'd have to keep all the rest but won't people take advantage when you tell them they're not under law? Won't they become lawless? And one of the opposite area, uh, errors is antinomianism. Have you heard that word? Well, you don't really need to know it, but anti against nomianism, nomos, law. It means that if you tell people they're not under law, won't they go and sin? And some people you see with their little minds can only see these two as the alternatives, that if you don't give them rules, they'll go and indulge themselves. <coughs> Amazing how churches develop rules and regulations. When I was a Methodist minister, there was a book half an inch thick called The Constitutional Practice and Discipline of the Methodist Church. It's now three and a quarter inches thick. There are 40 loose-leaf pages added every year. Listen, if rules and regulations could bring revival, the Methodists would leave us standing. <laughs> but it doesn't happen that way. How easy it is to try and regulate it and give rules for this, that and the other and think that somehow our organisation will bring life. It doesn't. Liberty brings life. And God set us free to be free. Watch legalism like a hawk. If you slip into it, you invariably become hard and hypocritical because you dare not tell other people if you're breaking the law. Just don't admit it in case you're thought to be unsound. Have you heard that word? Legalism. Let's look again at license. Yes, there is a real danger on this side. And Paul says, the works of the flesh. Beware of them. There's a swamp. It's another form of slavery. It's sticky, sucking filth. It's easy to slide into it and very hard to get out of. And the works, plural notice, the works of the flesh, some are pretty crude, promiscuity, occultism, drugs, he lists. There's a modern ring to all this. And then there are the subtle ones, quarrelling, rivalry, jealousy, envy, prejudice. <coughs> now those are pretty subtle ones, but that's the swamp of the flesh. Now notice that here's Paul arguing like mad about circumcision but he's talking about those who are just disagreeable either way, whatever issue is under discussion, who are constantly dividing people into parties and groups, that's another thing. You know what uh, Paul is talking about, I'm sure, this divisiveness, this awkwardness, this uh, the kind of personality that has so many corners you can't get near them, the kind of person who has faith to move mountains but leaves them in everybody else's path. Do you know the kind of person? <laughs> I'm afraid there are one or two in every fellowship. It's of the flesh. It's subtle, but it's works of the flesh. Now what happens, says Paul, when somebody slips 
into this. And I'm afraid it's constantly happening when there's some scandal in your fellowship, some scandal about a televangelist. What should the others do? And Paul, in a most solemn statement, he says, if it's occasional, if they've just slipped into it, then pick them up quickly because you might have slipped. There are a lot of banana skins on the Christian road. He said, if someone has slipped into sin, the rest of you get around and pick him up and be humble as you do so because it might be you. But he says habitual sin is quite a different matter. Someone who slips into this, pick them up quickly, get them back in the fellowship, get them healed. But if someone deliberately and willfully goes on wallowing in this, then he says, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And he's got a very solemn statement, if they go on in there, they will not inherit the kingdom. Now here again is a note I've sounded before, which is one of the things that Christians are wrestling with today, this one saved, always saved thing, but listen to Paul. After listing the works of the flesh that go on here, he says, I warn you as I've warned you before, those who go on doing these things will never inherit the kingdom of God. Now he's talking to believers here. He's not talking about those who slip into it and who need picking up quickly, but those who wallow in it and go on and say, I'm all right, I've got my ticket to heaven. And Paul says, you're not all right, you won't inherit the kingdom. Now that's just one of his warnings and it's a very serious one. You can slip into legalism, you can slip into license and you need to be pulled out quickly out of both. But if you deliberately and willfully choose to live there, either in the cage or the swamp, then you don't inherit the kingdom. And that's a serious warning we all need to hear. But now let's look at the liberty which is the beautiful side of it all. The freedom not to sin. Isn't that a lovely freedom? You are free now in Christ not to sin. You don't need to say yes. As Paul puts it in, I think, his letter to Titus, he said, we have been given the grace to say no, which somebody else said is the finest contraceptive for the unmarried that they've ever come across. <laughs> given the grace to say no. You're free to say no. Isn't that beautiful? Right, well let's now look what happens. Up here, though I can't put it on this diagram but you can see it on here, there's a path along the top and we need to keep moving as I've said earlier, we need to walk in the Spirit and as you walk in the Spirit something beautiful happens, fruit grows in your life. You cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit, you can produce the works of the flesh but you can't produce the fruit of the Spirit, but as you keep walking along that striding edge, the fruit grows in your life. And there is only one fruit with nine flavours, whereas there are many works of the flesh, there's only one fruit, singular, but it has nine flavours. Now there is such a fruit in Spain and in the Mediterranean, it's called Mysterio Deliciosis. Has anybody eaten it, could I see? You have, so they will believe me and you take a bite and it tastes like an orange, you take another bite it tastes like a lemon and it's got all different flavours in it, Mysterio Deliciosis. What a wonderful name for that fruit. I wanted somebody to say they'd had it because they wouldn't believe me otherwise, they'd think it was a preacher's story, you know. Daddy, were you, 
was that story true or were you just preaching, said a little boy. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> so the fruit of the Spirit, nine flavors. And all the flavors grow together. That's how you tell the fruit of the Spirit. You see, some of those flavors you do see in unbelievers, don't you? Some unbelievers have joy, others have peace, but you'll never see all nine together except in Christ and those filled with His Spirit and walking in His Spirit. You might see three or four in a good unbeliever, but all nine growing together is proof that the Spirit is in that person's life and that they're walking in the Spirit. And the nine flavors relate you to God, other people and yourself. Three of those flavors, love, joy and peace, bring you into perfect harmony with God. The next three, patience, kindness and goodness, bring you into right harmony with other people. And then faithfulness, meekness and self-control bring you into a good relationship with yourself. What a lovely fruit they are. Now then, uh, the fruit are limited, of course, without the gifts of the Spirit, as the gifts are inadequate without the fruit. You know, if I went to hospital to visit a sick person, I could show them all the fruit of the Spirit. I could show them love by visiting them, and joy by cheering them up, and peace by calming them down. And uh, f next, patience by listening to all the details of their operation. Uh, <laughs> kindness by giving them a bunch of grapes. Goodness by offering to look after the children. Faithfulness by visiting them every day. Self-control by leaving when the nurse said visiting hours are over. And No, no, I've missed one out. Faithfulness, meekness, meekness by leaving when the nurse tells me, and self-control by not eating the grapes. <laughs> now you see, I have, I have demonstrated all the fruit of the Spirit in that visit, but I haven't healed them, because that's a gift of the Spirit. And we need both the gifts and the fruit. Never put these against each other. But Paul says, as you walk in the Spirit, the fruit grow. And he uses the word walk here in two different ways, in fact two different words. Unfortunately again, your English translation probably has walk both times. At the end of chapter 5 it says walk in the Spirit and in chapter 6 it says walk in the Spirit. In the Greek, chapter 5 walk is peripatetic walking, peripatetic walkabout, what the Australians talk about walkabout. It means to go for a walk by yourself like an Aboriginal. But in chapter 6 the word walk is march in the Spirit, in step with others. Interesting, there are two kinds of walking in the Spirit. There's walking in the Spirit when we're by ourselves and there's walking in step with the rest of our Christian brothers and sisters. We need both. True liberty is walking along that height in step with your brothers and sisters, walking in the Spirit together. So that's the message of Paul's letter to the Galatians and I think it's one of the most relevant letters. It's not the most comfortable letter, but I would share the opinion of those who say this letter is the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. I really believe that's a wonderful title for it. If you want to know where we stand for freedom, this is our freedom. An awful lot of people are standing for other kinds of freedom, good or bad, but the freedom we stand for is the freedom not to sin. The freedom, the liberty of the Spirit to keep out of that cage called legalism and out of that swamp called license and keep up there on the heights enjoying the sunshine of God's favour. Why is this so relevant? Well, sadly legalism is still with us. 
It's all over the place. People trying to get to heaven by their own works. Or even having started in faith, going back to works, which is tragic. The late Dr. W. E. Sangster went to visit a woman in hospital who was dying. And he said to her, are you ready to meet God? What will you say when you meet God? And she held up worn hands. She said, I'm a widow. I've brought up five children. I've had no time for church or Bible or anything religious. But she said, I've done the best for my children. And when I see God, I'll just hold up these hands and he'll look at these hands and he'll understand. Now, what would you have said to a woman like that? Well, Dr. Sangster was a great Christian preacher, even preaching to one. And he just said to her, you're too late, dear. You're too late. She said, what do you mean? Well, he said, there's somebody got him in front of you and he's holding up his hands in front of God and God has eyes for no other. She said, what do you mean? And he was able to tell her, don't put your trust in your hands. Put your trust in his hands. See, legalism is still with us. It's rife. The average Britisher thinks being a Christian is being kind to grandmother and the cat. You know the kind of thing? That's what they think. I'm as good a Christian as anybody who goes to church. When they say that, they're right into legalism. And we've got to tell them that only 100% is good enough for heaven. And that if you, if you go there like you are now, you're going to ruin it for everybody else. In churches too, churches are so prone to add their own rules to their membership. I mentioned four steps up to the front door, repent, believe, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. There should be no more steps to the front door of the church, nothing more. The staircase is inside. A lot of other stairs to climb up inside as we'll see when we get to 1 Peter or 2 Peter. But there are only four steps outside. But unfortunately, we have the spectacle of churches who say you've got to be confirmed by a bishop or you've got to be this or you've got to be that. You've got to be committed. You've got to accept the leadership. You've got, And all sorts of commitment is being added to the steps outside the household of God. But those steps come inside and we should add no more than the Scripture to the door of the household of God or we're into legalism. And alas, license is still with us. There are still those who think that adultery by an unbeliever will take them to hell, but adultery by a believer is okay. There are still those who believe this and who believe that sin in believers is somehow excused. You may lose a bit of blessing or you may lose a bit of reward, but you can't lose your ticket to heaven. Galatians deals with that very firmly and says you don't inherit the kingdom of God if you deliberately go back to this. You stay up here and you walk with others along striding edge, the wind of the Spirit blowing in your face and the sunshine of God's grace upon you, and you make it. Well now, I've got just a few minutes left, have I? I think I'd better read to you a bit of Galatians. It's such an exciting... But listen to Paul's pleading, My brothers, I beg you, please stand with me. After all, I was willing to identify with you. You've never hurt me before. You know it was because of physical illness that I first came to tell you the good news. My condition must have been a real trial to you, but you never made fun of it, nor were you even disgusted with me. Indeed, you gave me a welcome fit for a heavenly messenger or even the Messiah Jesus himself. You were so pleased and proud to have me. Where have all those feelings gone? 
I recall vividly that you wished it was possible to donate your eyes for transplanting in me. Now you seem to suspect me of being your enemy. Is that because I've been so honest with you? I know that these others are keen to make a fuss of you, but their motives are not good. They want to have you all to themselves so that you will make a fuss of them. Don't get me wrong, special attention is always fine, provided the intentions are right. You are my special concern even when I'm not actually with you. My own children, I feel like a mother struggling with the pains of childbirth until Christ is brought right out in your lives. I just wish I could be with you at this moment so that you could hear the change in my tone of voice. I really am at my wit's end to know what to do about you. You feel the heart of Paul there? What an appeal that is. So, my brothers, God meant you to be free. On the other hand, don't make this freedom an excuse for indulging your old self. Use it to show your love for others by putting yourselves at their service for the whole law can be expressed in just one principle, namely, you are to care for your fellow man as much as you do about yourself. But if you snap at each other and pull each other to pieces, watch out that you don't end up by exterminating each other altogether. The approach I'm advocating is to let God's Spirit decide each step you take. Then you just won't try to satisfy the desires of your old self whose cravings are diametrically opposed to what God's Spirit wants and vice versa. The two are incompatible, which is why you find you can't always do what you really want to. If the Spirit is leading your life, you have nothing to fear from the law. He finishes the letter. Don't be under any illusions. No one can turn up their nose at God and get away with it. It is a universal law that a man must reap exactly what he's been sowing. If he cultivates his old self, he will harvest a character that has gone rotten. If he cultivates God's spirit, that spirit will produce a life of lasting quality. So let's never get fed up with doing good. One day there'll be a grand harvest if we don't give up. So whenever we get the chance, let's give as much help as we can to everybody and especially to our immediate fellowship of fellow believers, immediate family of fellow believers. Look what sprawling letters I use in my own handwriting. It is those who are concerned about outward appearance and like to show off who are pressurizing you into being circumcised. Their real object is to avoid the unpopularity associated with the cross of Jesus. Even though they observe circumcision, they don't seem to bother much about the rest of the Jewish law. They only want to get you circumcised so that they can brag about the number of converts to their ritual. Never let me boast about anything or anybody except the cross of Jesus. Through that execution, I am now dead to society and society is dead to me. Our standing in Christ is neither helped by being circumcised nor hindered by remaining uncircumcised. What really matters is being made into a new person inside. All who live by this simple principle will receive the undisturbed harmony 
and undeserved help of God, as will the true Israel. From now on, let no one interfere with my work again. I have the marks I want on my body. I'm branded with scars gained in the service of Jesus. May the love of Jesus, our divine master and anointed saviour, fill your inmost being, my brothers. So be it. That's just a bit of the letter, one of the most powerful letters you'll ever read. Try and read it in a modern translation as well. That's all for now. God bless you. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.